was thinking this week that the beginning of the year is a time to take stock of where we've been, of what we got right and what we got wrong, and it's a time to reevaluate and set our course going forward. And I think we're all doing that. I think believers and unbelievers and people of every stripe are doing, doing that at the turn of the year. And I think that the Lord wants to reveal to us. He wants us to learn from our mistakes. He wants us to learn from our successes. And He wants us to reconsider our instruments of navigation and make sure that they're right. It's one of those things that we just take for granted that the magnetic field will pull our compasses in the correct direction. Believe it or not, they say that it's constantly changing and that that change is even accelerating. Sometimes in the, sometime in the past couple years, they've, they've had to change the manual or the, the override adjustment to compensate because they say that the, the molten metals beneath the earth are shifting like a river changing course, moving out to the east and, and constantly changing what our compasses are supposed to be so they can throw off GPSs and everything. Because ultimately, that, that sensor, that mercury attraction, is detecting some large source of melted ore near the surface of the earth. And if that changes then we think we're heading due north, but we're heading somewhere else. Those are the times that we're living in. Times where it feels that the givens seem to be shifting. And a lot of that is is a cultural dynamic. It's a spiritual dynamic. It's things released, powers unleashed in the heavenly places. And those have ramifications in our daily lives. Nobody can be unaffected by that. Some of that is is being done by the church. As the church releases, I don't mean this local body, but the church at large releases certain spirits or ways of thinking and they unleash, they loose and bind the power of the enemy into the church. The power of God into the church. They have that capacity. They sanction or they reject. Amen. And so we can find ourselves battling things that we didn't battle formerly. And we can say to ourselves, this never used to be an issue. And that's an observation, but all it indicates is that the magnetic north is shifting in heavenly places, in subterranean places. Things are changing and they are affecting our compass reading and so we need to take stock by evaluating more than one source and saying God by the mouth of many witnesses through your word through the witness of your Holy Spirit through my brothers and my sisters give me a direction give me an answer guide me when my compass seems to be going in the wrong direction don't let me be so self-assured that I would uh, 
I would fail to make that compensation that the NOAA system, the NOAA organization keeps making to our GPSs. Amen. You have a different pull on you than you did at the beginning of the year last year. Somebody told me that this year, 2024, is um, going to be unique in that unlike any year in recent history or any year in the near future, we are going to see more than half the world's population, more than two-thirds of the world's population, uh, is going to change their executor their executive at the highest level of politics. 2024 will represent an upheaval year for that reason alone. This won't happen for decades to come, and it's been decades since this happened. But as I said earlier, time is filled with swift transitions. And it is, it is critical that in evaluating our navigational instruments, we find those sources that are coming from the throne of grace and that are not passing through the filters of this world that is passing away. The brother has already asked, what is our secure place? That's the question, isn't it? Where is that sure place? Where is that firm path for my feet? Where is that open door? Where is that solidity in God? One of our favorite passages in the book of Psalms speaks of the secret place of the Most High. And we ask ourselves, you know, whether it is in 2024 or in another 50 to 100 years, where is that safety? Where is that security? Where is that fortress? Where is that strong tower? Where is that sanctuary for the church, for our children, for our grandchildren? Where is it? And I would say that it's hard to describe every aspect of that sanctuary in a word or two, even a phrase or two. But we can sum it all up by saying it is being in the will of God. And you say, well, but that's not very simple because that's subject to a lot of input and interpretation and specificity and individuality. And and I say, I know. (laughs) That's what necessitates a relationship with the Spirit. And that's what necessitates a relationship with the body. That's what necessitates, that's what highlights the precariousness of our security. I don't mean that it's, that once we find it, it's precarious. I mean that finding it is precarious. We are always looking for something that doesn't require ongoing dependence on God. We are always looking for some rubric some one-size-fits-all formula that just settles this and allows me to go back to sleep and be at ease in Zion. And we can do this in discipleship. We can do this in finding God's will for our family. 
We want to resolve the cognitive dissonance, but that cognitive dissonance is resolved through an ongoing relationship with a God whom we cannot touch, we cannot smell, we cannot taste, we cannot see with the naked eye. It is difficult, and it ought to be difficult. He is an ever-present help in a time of trouble, but laying hold of Him can be a challenge. We're told that we must stir ourselves to lay hold of Him. We're told that we must seek Him diligently if we would find Him. And when we seek for Him with all our hearts, then we're going to find Him. That's not simple. That's hard. In another manner of speaking, it takes a sacrifice. It costs us something. And everything that proposes a simple solution outside of that dependence on God is of the evil one. Brother Randy and I were speaking last night and he brought up the question, what is mammon? Jesus mentions it only twice in the whole Bible and I started looking at some of the references and as we began to talk, some things started gelling. But I was astounded when I looked up the word mammon because it kind of sounds like the word money, doesn't it? And so we erroneously assume that it has some etymology in the word money. It does not. Do you know what word mammon shares roots with? The word amen. The theological dictionary of the New Testament as well as Mounts and others say that mammon is first and foremost confidence and security. That's what I have written down right here. Confidence, trust, and security are the three most defining words of the, of the term mammon. And it, it certainly in context refers to wealth becoming that confidence or security. I don't dispute that. But it is not exclusive to that. It refers to anything other than God that we put our amen in. When God speaks to you and you know that's a promise you can live by, you say, Amen. In the Bible, the word Amen, so be it, let it be. It, it can almost be a vow, it can almost be a pledge. It's how they entered into the covenant and all God's people said, Amen. That's what Moses had them enter the covenant. So it is this solidity, it is this response it is this attitude toward God's Word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, and when that Word comes, what do we say? We say, Amen. People are saying it as we speak right now, whether beneath their breath, in their heart, or even verbalizing it, Amen. Amen. Every time you hear something of God that you want to make your security, something in you says, let it be. So be it. And mammon comes from the same root. It is an ancient Aramaic word that comes from the same root as amen. But you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and anything else that elicits that amen from you that is not God. 
There's a thousand God replacements out there. I remember when we were kids, we were bottle feeding this calf and we got this powder called milk replacement. Well, there's a lot of powders out there called God replacement. And they may even come in the name of God. But God invites us into a relationship of power in dependence. In, two words, dependence. <laughs> Not power independence. <laughs> Amen. And it's in interdependence. It's in this coordination of the body of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. The flesh or the devil is going to try to get you to put your amen in the power of the sword. Peter tried that. It's going to try to get you to put your amen in your gifts. Many have tried that. That's mammon to you. It's going to try to get you to put your amen in your strategies and your health trips. That's mammon also. That's a God replacement also. It's going to kind of try to get you to put your amen in the conglomerate of this big culture, too big to fail, and that's mammon also. Anything that is not God, anything that is not the living, almighty presence of the God who made you is a mammon to you. It's going to try to get you to put your confidence in wealth, security, Jesus says that we have to use things, we have to use wealth in a righteous manner. It has a godly function. It's not evil because it's money. That's not what makes it evil. It's evil if it's your amen. But if something else is your amen, and this is merely a way of realizing and serving that higher purpose, then it not only is okay, it's part of God's purpose and plan. The Lord has been speaking to me recently about <clears throat> what are the underlying big dynamics that govern this fallen world, this fallen flesh, and certainly the times that we live in. And I remember my dad saying, he, he published something related to this, but I remember him saying to us on a couple occasions that it would be hard to find a more fundamental sin than envy. And I want to spend just a little bit of time on that because I don't want us to find mammon even if it bears a religious label. I don't want us to find a, a counterfeit and think that we have made this our security. Because the Pharisees were serving mammon whether money was involved or not, because they were serving an unenlivened principle that was not animated by the Spirit of God. I alluded to this yesterday, but Paul says that those who cling to a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, he says, have nothing to do with them. They are apostates. People who are enamored with the form to the neglect of the power thereof are apostates. Because they have begun to worship the creature rather than the creator. And the only difference between an idol and the living God 
is the animation involved. Jesus says the words, I speak to you, are spirit, and they are full of life. Amen. In Revelations, he says, I am alive from the dead. And then he makes the statement, Amen. Thank you, Jesus. When we begin to pursue an idea that is not anointed by the Spirit, it is a thing, it is an it, it is not a who. Amen? Jesus is the truth, but He is the Word of God as opposed to the Word of man. The Word of God is what? Is living and powerful. He does not give as the defining phrase the Word of God is true, which is, of course, true. But that is not our first evaluating marker for the Word of God. The Word of God is living and powerful. And we reverse that in our heads as only Christians could accustom themselves to doing. And they say, oh, I get it. So whatever I call the Word of God, no matter how dead, I'm going to claim that it's living. No, that's not what he's saying. He makes the distinction in John 6. The words I speak, as opposed to the ones you speak or me speak, The words I speak, Jesus says, are living. They are spirit and they are full of life. Thank you, Jesus. So if we become attached to, obsessed with, revolving around, honoring ideas, even about God, even truths of God, if we detach them from His living presence and from His living body and we begin to obsess over them, they become to us idols. They become to us an it instead of a who. The difference between an it and a who is animation. Would you agree? So we've got to know, is this the anointed word of God? Because even the devil can quote scriptures. That's one of our protection. That's one of those guiding instruments that's going to help us keep the compass right. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Amen. We can can become obsessed with uh, salvation models that in many ways overlap the, the salvation of the Scripture, but in many ways are not that do not lead us into relational dependence, but lead us instead into something else. And I want to go to this idea of envy. You know, James says, why are there wars and rumors of war among you? Because you lust and do not have. That's envy. What is the first sin in the Bible? It's envy. Isn't it? You will be like God. He knows you're going to have power. So the first sin is to provoke an envy to something that they're not and make them desire it. They saw that it was desirable or enviable for food and able to make one wise. So it's envy. What is the first murder built on? Envy. And and, and this is what runs the whole world. Yes, indeed, the whole world. Somebody says, well, aren't there more charitable systems? And aren't there less charitable systems? Aren't there more egalitarian models and less egalitarian models? 
well, what is, um, what is capitalism built on? It's built on envy. That's why they build the economy, increase the economy by triggering you when you see someone who has something that you don't have. Does that make sense? So capitalism is built on envy. But what is communism built on? What is socialism built on? Envy. So the difference between capitalism and socialism, they're joined, they're linked at the hip with envy. Capitalism works like this. He has a shirt that I don't have. I'm going to go work so I can buy a shirt that's that good and better. Socialism works like this. He has a shirt that I don't have, so I'm going to kill him and take his shirt. But they're both envy. Seriously. I mean, if you know Marxism, they've got to tear down existing structures of order in order to rebuild them and make themselves the hero and thus take the place of the origin of the original structure. Why did they deliver Jesus over? The Pharisees, they just came right out and said, you know, we are jealous of the attention he's getting. Is that what they said? No, no, they were worried about the law and they were worried about the temple and they were worried about an insurrection and they were worried about taxes to Caesar. They had all these big concerns, but it wasn't any of that. Pilate, who lived in the politics of envy, he understood exactly what it was. It says he knew that they had delivered him over because of envy. There was, so you, you look top to bottom. It's why it's, it's why it's how sin enters and it's, it's everything. And what is envy? What is envy? You say, well, it's desire for something. Well, but we, we would imagine that there's a good kind of desire and a bad kind of desire, right? What is it? What is envy? How, how is, is it okay to, to want something? When is it bad? What is lust? What is lust in that envious sort of way? Is it, I just want this and so therefore I'm evil? Selfish ambition is bad. And self-seeking is bad. It's saying that I am not centered in a higher purpose and receiving from God what is needed to realize that purpose. Instead, I am centered in myself. And I am going to use God and others as the means to get what I need. What I've decided I need. So envy is fundamentally bad because it breaks relational dependence and it makes you the provider instead of the Lord. Do you see what I'm saying? There's no gift. There's no given. There's no father from whom every good and perfect gift comes. There's merely achievers, competitors. Thank you, Jesus. Which of the Ten Commandments have to do with envy. All of the prescriptions in some way or another have to do with envy. What did James say about where envy and self-seeking exist? What did he say there? There is every evil thing. There is, first he said disorder. So it is, envy is a, is a chaos agent. 
Envy, the first thing envy does is it tears apart the order of God. The most likely place for envy to express itself is in tearing apart the order of God. Because James says where envy and self-seeking exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, does that make you think of another scripture that Paul said? When he, when he says where envy exists, there is every evil thing. Does that make you think of any scripture from Paul? When he says the love of money is the root of all evil. Why? Because money is envy made actionable. Money is merely the means to get outside of relationship, outside of submission to God's will. It's the means to realize your envy. Do you see what I'm saying? So James and Paul are not telling us two different things. They're telling us the same thing. That this lust, this desire, this rejection of givens is at the core of everything that is wrong with society and with the human soul. What, what does John say? First John, for everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of of the flesh and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world and is of the evil one. Thank you, Jesus. What is the cure to envy? So my definition that I'm giving is grasping as if we didn't receive by gift but grasping and therefore grasping outside of relationship where God would give it to us, grasping to take things for ourselves, centered in our ambitions, not as a servant to his purpose, but as the, the God of our own existence. So what is the remedy for envy? Repentance. Repentance kills the envy engine. That's what repentance is. That demanding, self-centered person who knows what he needs and is constantly conniving to get it is resolved, is put to death in repentance. And so any envy should always take us back to repentance. Always back to God. Would you lead me to a deeper place of repentance? And repentance is the death of one thing, but it's also faith. In the goodness of God. There is no repentance without faith. And there is no saving faith without repentance. It's two sides of the same coin. Because repentance is taking that prerogative away from self. And putting that trust in God. And saying, all my times are in your hands. Amen. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. My God shall supply all my needs according to his riches in store. Amen. He can make me stand. He is able to make me stand. It's this faith. It's this trust. It's this confidence. It's not mammon. So I want to just take an aside here that's not really an aside. What is Babylon? Babylon is individual and corporate envy primarily against God, made fully manifest. 
If you read the book of Genesis in chapter 11, you would have to say that the Tower of Babel is the capstone of the tree of knowledge. It is man building a monument. It's man still trying to take God's place. And it's in its original and most essential expression, it is not yet about economy. Because money is merely the facilitator of the greater sin. The essential sin is envy in the face of God. And that what Nimrod, he was in the face of God. There's a brazenness and there's a disorder. When they start building the Tower of Babel, what does God say? If they agree and put their minds to this, nothing they do will be impossible. And what is God admitting in that statement? That a bunch of people made in His image, though fallen, when they come together, they can achieve almost divine power. Because about whom is it said, nothing He does is impossible? It's about God. And yet God is saying about the aggregate of this corporate project to realize envy against divinity, He's saying nothing they do will be impossible. And that's why things like artificial intelligence represent major advancements in the Babylon project because whatever is attempting or purporting to achieve this divine power in in this corporate endeavor, that is the original struggle. That is essentially Babylon. I'm speaking broadly. You could spend entire weeks just delving into different aspects of this. But I want us to get a big picture, and I'm actually going to be done pretty quickly here. And, and God's activity at the Tower of Babel clarifies what the essential dynamics were, doesn't it? What did God do to this envious effort to, to achieve godhood? Confusion of communication. Well, let's, just say communi- let's just say confusion. If confusion was the remedy, then the wrong kind of wisdom was the problem. You see what I'm saying? Envy is the dynamic. Envy is the ambition. But the mechanism is the wrong kind of wisdom. It's the the tree of knowledge trying to deliver on the promise that you will be as God. So envy and human rationalism always go together. They are the most essential expressions of the thing that we metaphorically call Babylon. They are the most essential expressions of that which we are supposed to be leaving. Envy and human rationalism when separated from God. Can I underline that a couple times? Can I put some exclamation marks on both sides of it? So when we say, God, what is Babylon essentially? We need to look for envy and the wrong kind of wisdom. Babylon is not essentially your food source. Babylon is not essentially about money. That is an essential mechanism in its expansion. But that is not essentially Babylon. Babylon is not a place 
Babylon is essentially about this envy, this project to take God's place through the mechanism of the carnal mind. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So you need to be careful. Because if we don't watch it, the devil will get us reaching for the carnal mind to solve our Babylon problems. And then he'll start triggering envy to legitimize these efforts. And we'll be in the Babylon that we're trying to escape. We'll be fueling it in ourselves. God has answers, but they come from the Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Whether the Tower of Babel or otherwise, before Zerubbabel, the seed out of Babel, you will become a plain. We don't need human thinking. We don't need rationalism. We don't need that. We need the voice of God. We don't need formulas. We don't need conclusions. We need the voice of God. And if we have conceived of a problem or a solution that can be handled and possessed by the flesh, we have been deceived, which is another essential element of Babylon. The person without the Spirit of God does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. And again, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And again, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Why? Why? Because the world, through its wisdom, did not come back into relationship of dependence with God. Isn't that what it says? The world, through its wisdom, did not come to know God. So there's a wisdom that separates you from relationship to the spirit and the body, and there's a wisdom that brings you into that relationship. One is from the evil one. One is from below, and the other is from above. We don't want to adopt the one from below because claiming to be wise, we will become fools. So how... How are we going to overcome this mechanism? Well, we've got to change our attitude about God. We've got to stop seeing God or His order as something to compete with or something to grasp for. And we've got to start feeling that our purpose, our fulfillment is in Fulfilling, fulfilling His design in our lives, which is first and foremost to love one another. That's His greatest commandment. Somebody reminded me of Covey yesterday, and, and uh, I thought about how he says in his book that maturation unfolds on three, in three phases. Total dependence, independence, leading to interdependence I think that's a profound insight when you're a baby you rely on others for everything and then you go into the most dangerous time you go into the time where you're, you think you're God 
You will be as God, knowing for yourself. You're totally independent. Only half of your synapses are firing. We also call that the teenage phase. And sometimes that extends for decades. (laughs) But wisdom is coming to the interdependent stage. Thank you, Jesus. That's the body of Christ. That's where Paul can say in Philippians, I have not been perfected. I have not attained. But then he says, you have us as a pattern. And whoever is perfect or mature keeps this attitude of moving toward more. (laughs) Brother Randy was saying that the more wise you get, the less cocksure you are. The more you know, the more you know that you don't know. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet as he ought to know it. There is a powerful combination lock that can open the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But that combination lock is when the tumblers of gifts and people align according to God's design. And all of a sudden, we start to see knowledge and understanding as a relationship with the spirit of love, not as something, a tool for me to grasp my envious desires. Oh, God, help us to come to that place. Amen. Covey also says that, he says that there are two mindsets that guide people. And they either give birth to cooperation or competition. And he said the two mindsets are the scarcity mindset or the abundance mindset. If you believe that there's only a little bit of good in the world, then you're going to get your cookie, your hand in the cookie jar and fight over that last cookie. Competition is built in the lie that there's only a little good. And you better get yours or else he's going to take it. You see that? Does everybody get that? It's the scarcity mindset. But cooperation is built on a completely different paradigm. It's built on the idea that true value and good is not attained. It is given from God. (laughs) So every good and perfect gift comes from above He is able to bless us. He is able to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Amen. If grace were a thing, if it were were the last pocket knife in Texas, we might arm wrestle for it. We might compete for it in any number. We might race to the chair where it was sitting. If grace were a thing, we'd fight over it. If love were a thing, we'd wrestle with it. But it's not a thing. It's a spiritual reality. And if you're getting grace, then I'm getting more grace. If you're getting gold, then there's less gold in the world for me to get. But if you're getting grace, immediately grace is multiplying to me and I'm getting more of it. If you're getting love, then I'm getting more love. But it's this scarcity mindset that is always resentful. You think of how often it is that an unrepented person gets angry when someone else gets blessed. 
It's like, but they didn't take that from you. I know, but I'm just, just like Cain. I'm full of envy. And I don't believe that God's gifts come from God. I don't believe they're God's gifts. I believe they're things that i got to fight over. Scrap and scrape and punch and claw and lie and... No. There's a completely different paradigm where Paul says, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. You can't even get your mind around it. (laughs) Or when he says that we may be able, look at this, together with all the saints to comprehend what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Knowledge. Knowledge is like a daddy long leg trying to wrestle an elephant. Human knowledge can't grab love. Can't clinch grace in its grasp. The things that God wants to give us, we got to join hands and reach out together and take it into the body of Christ. Together with all the saints we can comprehend what God is trying to give. Jesus, free us from envy. We deny it. We renounce it. We despise it in ourselves. Free us from grasping. Free us from the tree of knowledge and the rational mind. Help us to trust. Help us to receive that kind of wisdom that is a gift given through prayer. Wisdom's not learned. It's given by God through prayer. If anyone asks, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God and he will freely give. It's like giving the Holy Ghost because it's a revelation of wholeness. It's not an understanding that we achieve through learning. Did not know what Brother Ossie was going to share with us today when I made my notes this morning. The title I put up at the top was Believe in His Goodness. Thank you, Jesus. Brother Howard was just reminding us that that the way it started in the garden was with a doubt as to what God really intended through the commandments that He had given. What did God intend through those commandments? Was it not for their good? And the enemy comes in and says, it's not really what's at work here. In fact, what he really says is what's really at work in God is envy. Uh, He's afraid that you're going to take his place. And and, and that sounds very reasonable to the natural mind because that's how we think. And anytime we think in a certain way, the easiest thing to do is to totally assume that everybody else thinks the same way too. So when envy is in our hearts, one of the first fruits we should expect is that we see envy around every corner and everybody else. Is that fair to say? I had written down a few examples about what wrong reactions to the goodness of God, and I'm going to jump to those for a second, like where 
Jesus tells the parable of the laborers and the one comes at the end and gets the same wage and God chooses to bless him and they start complaining, you know. And Jesus says, is your eye evil because I am good? Thank you, Jesus. Or what about the brother of the prodigal son? His brother comes home after squandering everything. And the father is rich in mercy. And the brother is over there thinking, I worked really hard for this status as a good capitalist. You're not going to just hand it to him, are you? It's so human. Jesus' stories are so human. I guess that was intentional. At Christmas time, this year I shared just a little bit with our family. It was striking me what Christmas is, what we're celebrating at Christmas time, and the goodness of God, the unmerited goodness of God that we marvel at. I don't know that we have, that I've ever had a Christmas season in my life when some fresh aspect of God's goodness didn't impress itself on my heart. Like, why did God do what he did? We want to think in terms of what we have merited, and we didn't merit it, you know? But after all of this silence, after all of this grief, for centuries, God says, you know what, there's still a plan. There, there's still a way. I'm still going to do what you do not deserve. I'm going to come in your likeness. You know, and he reveals his heart. It's peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Thank you, Jesus. It's very humbling to receive the goodness of God. I thought of Hebrews where it says, those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder. If we would come to God's presence, not the God idea, but we would come into his, an experience of God, we must not only believe that he exists or that he is sovereign or that he is omnipotent, we must believe in his character. We must believe in his heart. We must believe in his essence. We must believe in his goodness. And I believe it's tempting to the flesh to doubt his goodness. But the distance comes when we start doubting his goodness. We could say it the other way and it would be just as true that when distance comes, we start doubting his goodness <laughs> because we get too far away from him. I think this passage that I had bookmarked applies to what the Lord has already spoken to us. You know this one. Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. That's mammon. Trusts in man who makes flesh his strength. And we know this right here is the command center of the flesh whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert, and he shall not see when good comes. The good is going to come. And we can totally miss it. 
But he shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited. He's going to be lonely. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. He doesn't say no problems will come. But when they do, he will not fear, and his leaf will be green. He will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will he cease from yielding fruit. He doesn't say no droughts. He says we're going to keep on bearing fruit in the drought because of where our confidence is placed. And of course, that's where he goes into the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it, only the Lord. I know you're thinking of it, but think of Proverbs. You know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Thank you, Jesus. Can I read you a little excerpt from Brother Blair's writing? Uh, I think this is in a time of harvest and its fullness. There's a piece of it in uh, To Be a Community. Which, by the way, I'm going to stop right here for just a second and say, I hope you make it your New Year's resolution to actually read that book. I've been a little bit disappointed by how many people I've heard of. They're like, oh, yeah, it's pretty neat. I've looked at a few pictures. I made it a little ways. I've got to read it sometime. I hope you'll get a copy and read it. If you'll read it front to back, it just might change your life. It did mine just to work on it. Anyway, this story is in that book, but the piece I'm going to read from you, we didn't quote the whole thing because we condensed some of it, but it's from Brother Blair, and he's, he's taken off from his journal writings here. This is in Rehoboth. And he's describing some visitors that are coming across the field to where he's, um, he's working with the horses. I don't remember what he was doing. And it says, As they made their way through the fields that edge our stream, a hope rose in me that these visitors might hear Rehoboth's song in the way that we who live here so often do. Yesterday, we had a slightly unpleasant experience of visitors from California who were so centered in themselves that they couldn't hear or see anything outside themselves and how outstandingly important they were, how independent from all that surrounded them. So that was a rather noisy encounter of clashing sounds where the visiting instruments continually tried to rise above their part in the symphony. Competition. Reactions, in contrast to responses, are always noisy like that. But only the instrument's responsiveness to the conductor and the composition can bring music. In spite of that encounter yesterday, today I had once again let my peace return unto me. I now felt content to accept whatever came, whether good or bad. My peace could absorb it. Creating reactions through stimuli is how people train animals through operant conditioning. Learning to respond and make music requires reaching beyond such reactions and attuning ourselves to a voice that transcends all the cacophony, the confusion, 
and composes us into our place in the greater song. I also think, though, that we as a people may have too often underestimated not only just how bad the bad can be, but also just how good the good can be. I woke up on New Year's Eve morning with that line blazing through my head. I think the Lord put it there. Looking towards the year ahead, let's not be blindsided by how bad things can be. But let's not miss how good things can be. Brother Blair, so I once again rested in anticipation that in turn lightly rested upon me, but I could feel that my heart had begun to rise up in awe of the coming moment, as if something wonderful were about to unfold, like when the master of the symphony suddenly stands and plays the note on his violin that tunes all the instruments just before the orchestrated whole begins to play. And so I remained lightly suspended somewhere in the calm between my own past experience and the immediate anticipated moments ahead, listening ever more carefully for the voice to speak. I could hear with my heart the voice building towards some articulation, and that is why I thought something good was about to happen. Something was about to be born. And those visitors were Zafrir and Noah. A little different than the visitors from the day before, apparently. <laughs> Let's not miss it when good comes. Because we've retreated in some into some kind of cynicism that we call realism. Amen? About ourselves and our failures. About our brothers and their needs. About people in general. We can't lose sight of the God that would change it. Huh. And I had written down here about Cain. This is under where I had, we must believe that he is a rewarder. How God had said to Cain, if you would do what was right, would you not be accepted? Amen. I mean, Cain, he's so offended. Why? Well, John tells us bluntly, because his brother's deeds were righteous. That's what his big problem was. His brother is succeeding. His brother has the favor of God. And it just irks him. And yet God is pleading with him and saying, why does that irk you? Why don't you just give the same sacrifice and enjoy the same reward? Don't you believe that God has it for you too? It's not the last cookie in the jar. <laughs> He's got a few more. We think we perceive favoritism. I thought when you were talking about capitalism and socialism, you know, it's like we almost want God to govern that way. We see the way he's distributing gifts or blessings or whatever in the body, and we say, but I, I thought God was a capitalist. I thought this was a free market. And I've worked even harder than brother so-and-so to try to fill that place, and nobody seems to be acknowledging my part. I thought this was America, where you could pick yourselves up by your bootstraps and make something out of nothing out of your life. And instead, something, there seems to be privilege going on here. 
Or we want him to govern like a socialist and make everything equal. I perceive some inequity here. So, you know, if I can't have it, then he shouldn't have it either. I know you already said it, but I'm just emphasizing it. Can I just say something? Yes. You know, that's really what Paul is saying in Romans 9. Far from giving a teaching on individual predestination, he's trying to help Christians reconcile what they perceive as the unequal hands that God deals various people. And he's saying, you're the clay, he's the potter. And that's not your place. Your place is to become that vessel of honor. It's failing to trust his design. And it's also acting as if anybody merits anything. I mean, if you've got nothing and somebody gives you a hundred bucks and they give somebody else a thousand bucks, are you worse off? <laughs> and that's a poor way to even look at it because it's not just, it's not just a, a single facet in terms of the gifts that God gives. They are multifaceted and they are interactive and interdependent so that no part of the body can say to the other parts, I don't need you. Every part can be a vessel of honor. And Thank you, not, Jesus. And he's not giving gifts as an indication of his acceptance of the person. Amen. He's giving gifts for the f- service of others in the body. And gifts are a liability to the one who receives them. They're not God's compliment on his character or even God's greater degree of love or acceptance. Amen. They are functional for the purpose of advancing his purpose. But he gives them to the just and the unjust alike and is kind to uh, faithful and unrighteous men. So it's not, a, if we could separate and say, Lord, my love, just like none, none of us are going to take our gifts to the grave, all of us are going to be children when we leave this life, in the same sense, we have to have that abiding security as God's child that supersedes our role or our function, which is ultimately always temporary. It's also why the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. And you can be used for other purposes than God intended. I was reading in 2 Kings 6, and these stories will be familiar to you. And I'll start where the king of Syria is making war against Israel. And he keeps getting frustrated Because every time he tries to make an advance, God tells Elisha what he's doing, and um, his plan is thwarted. And he says here that when the man of God told him about the enemy's plan, that the king was watchful there, not just once or twice. I mean, this happened and happened and happened, and I found some faith in that. We may have enemies that seem to outnumber us, but God has a wisdom that he can speak to the prophet in his bedroom. He's going to have an answer for every battle that we face. And we've got to believe that. We've got to get our hearts in a place where we will see that answer. Amen. Amen. 
And so the king, the, the, the king of Syria get, tries to figure out a way to get at Elisha because they, he says, why is this happening? And they say, well, it's this guy, Elisha. Um, no, no, there are no informers among your servants, but this guy, Elisha, he hears in his bedroom, he hears what you're saying in your bedroom, and we, we don't know why this is happening. So he says, okay, well, I've got to take him out then. Your good old competition comes in the picture again. So they, he sends a servant towards him, and, and then... Elisha's servant gets nervous about what's coming against Israel when he sees the situation. Because there's an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots, and he says, what shall we do? And the prophet answers, do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then you remember he prays that the Lord would open the eyes of this young man that he would see this as it really is. Sometimes you can start looking out at the battles and say, oh God, what are we going to do? This is not going to result in a victory. But God opened the eyes of faith in us to see the armies of the Lord. Amen. God has a plan. He's going to win this one too. Amen. And then when they come, Elisha prays, and this time he prays for blindness. And the enemies are blinded, and they bring the whole group into the city. And the king is there saying, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Here's the moment for advantage. Here's the moment. you know. And he's like, nope, we're not going to kill them. Set food and water before them. And they says they prepared a feast for their enemies. Amen. Now that's, that's the context. He sends them all home. And then what happens? Well, before too long, the next thing we're told is that they've come again and they've laid siege to Samaria. And the famine is so bad that it says here that half a cup of dove droppings were being sold for five shekels of silver. People were in a desperate place. And then the king hears a report about people eating their, their children. And he tears his clothes as, as you might expect under such duress. But what does he say? Where is that prophet Elisha? God, do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha remains on him today. What is he doing? It makes me think that he's looking back on what just happened and saying, I knew he was a fool to show mercy. I knew he was a fool to believe in love and goodness and all that stuff. Here they are, taking advantage of us again. He should have let me kill him. It's how things work in this world. So now he wants to kill Elisha as if it's Elisha's fault. And so he sends someone to get Elisha. And Elisha knows it. He knows that he says he makes comments about this murderer has come to take my life. And he sends back to him the word of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord that he sends? Is it a word of judgment? No. He says, by this time tomorrow, 
God is going to work a miracle that you would not believe. <laughs> There's, it's all going to work out. God has an answer. But the man upon whom the king leaned said his famous words, you know, if the windows of heaven would open, could such a thing be? He didn't believe in the goodness of God. Thank you, Jesus. And what does Elisha say in return? Oh, it shall be. But you're not going to see it. Because you trust in the wrong place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And how does the Lord work this miracle? He doesn't work it through the king in his agony. He doesn't work it through the people who are just buckled down trying to last it out. He works it through those four lepers outside the gate who say, if we do nothing, we die. They know that passivity is definitely not the answer. But who knows that if we would just take some steps of faith, what would happen? And God multiplies the sound of those footsteps, routes the enemy, and they go and they find all of this blessing. You know, when they come back and tell the king, you know what he says? The king hears about all this, that the enemy is routed, there's food for everybody, and he says, it's a trap. They're trying to lure us out there to kill us. I mean... Sometimes God can already do the miracle, and we're still sure it can't happen. It's terrible, isn't it? So he just sends out a little scout party to try to see, and they come back and confirm it's really as we thought. And then the rush is so great that the man upon whom the king leaned is trampled in the gate as God's people rush to victory. And I just, I know this is maybe partial, but I just feel like at least part of the answer of what is the antidote to this envy that claws at our heels. Part of the antidote is coming to God and believing that he is just who he said that he is. That he is a rewarder. That he has an answer. That things are going to be more good. I wanted to say gooder, but my mother wouldn't let me. <laughs> more good than we could imagine. That eye has not seen and ear hasn't heard, hasn't entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Thank you, Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we've got to believe that in our own circumstances, in relationships. Sometimes that's where we give up the easiest. And we start thinking, this is just never going to work. Because we're looking at the consequences of human nature in ourselves or in others. But God is good in spite of all of that. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. And when you are just convinced down to the soles of your boots that God has an answer that will result in more love, more unity, more wisdom, more faith, and more power, then division is not the result. Unity and wisdom from above and love are the result. And that's what I feel as I look towards this coming year. God, deliver us from envy. <laughs> and God, let us place our faith in your goodness. Let us be like a tree planted by the river that yields fruit in season and out, no matter what the enemy throws at us. Amen. You're good all the time.
Could I share something just a, a little bit more about the prodigal son? Yes. You know, I, <clears throat> you can define prodigal as, as wasteful living. And please don't just take it in terms of money, because it's not. Uh, but as I was sitting here listening to everything that's being shared in the Holy Ghost, uh, I started thinking about how we're, we're exhorted not less than eight times in the Scripture to honor our father and mother. And I know, I know for sure that, that it is speaking to honor our natural father and mother. But I also believe it speaks to honor our Heavenly Father and our spiritual mother also. And in the beginning of this meeting, Brother Gabe sang that song and, and he said, let the sons and the daughters sing. I really felt it. Let the sons and the daughters sing. And like the prodigal son, the temptation is to cash out on, on our original household and to go seek a place of our own, our own choosing. To, to, to cash out or, or to, or by the means of mammon, take what was previously held in trust. Take it. And this is mammon's evil bargain, you might say. The, the foolish invitation to make ourselves independent. In Luciferian defiance of the grace of God. And ultimately dishonoring our father and the mother of us all. But instead... Let the sons and the daughters sing. Let us rejoice and be thankful of all that God has brought us out of it and this bountiful place that he's, he's set us in. I'm so thankful as the church has become more and more vulnerable, I feel stronger and more interdependent. You remember when Brother Howard sat right there and he said the only thing that restrains us, the only thing that, that holds us is love. I have felt so much more love since then. I think we all should. I have felt so much stronger in interdependence since then. I'm so thankful. Let the sons and the daughters sing. Amen. It is the most humbling thing to truly believe in just how good God is. Amen. It, it destroys our competition. It destroys our striving. Amen. A little bit of thanksgiving can go a long ways. And I just want to live in the goodness of God. I want to trust His heart. It doesn't matter what we're going through. When God was sending the children of Israel on a disciplinary captivity for 70 years, that's when He spoke those words we like to quote where He says, I know the plans I have for you. Not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you hope and a future. He said that going into the disciplinary period. And I'm just saying, when you connect with God, when He's the God of mercy, and He is the sweet love of your soul, it will change everything. It does not matter what kind of battle you're in. Who did you ever hear say, I was really going through it, but when I prayed through into the presence of God, and I felt His Holy Spirit, I 
still felt like it was insufficient and I didn't know if I was going to make it. Said no one ever. We can get into that place right now in this room, no matter where we are. We can say, oh God, because of you, we can make it. Amen. And it's going to be good. The ending is going to be good. It's going to be one of those ironies that we talked about that makes for a great story that magnifies a great God.